The Spectator Economic Innovator of the Year Awards, sponsored by Investec, are open for entries. If you are an entrepreneur-led business bringing radical change to its sector, please apply at www.spectator/innovator. We are looking for entries all across the UK, and our closing date is the 4th of July. Hello, I'm Angus Colwell, and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Each week, a few of our favourite writers read their pieces from the latest issue of the magazine. This week, we'll hear from Robert Hardman on why the Queen is a silent radical, Marion Thomas on the sorry state of general practice, and Sarah Dighton on feminism's biggest problem. First up is Robert Hardman. Long before domestic woes and an inferno at Windsor had prompted the Queen to describe 1992 as her Annus Horribilis, she had a very frank discussion with her Prime Minister, John Major. On this particular matter, she made it clear that she was not interested in ministerial advice. Her mind was made up. She had decided to pay income tax. For the best part of two years, through war in the Gulf and a recession, sections of the media had been painting a picture of a spoiled, profligate royal family carrying on without a care. Every long-range snap of a shooting party or of the Duchess of York on another holiday was taking its toll and would be conflated with the issue of money. As her then press secretary, Charles Anson, told me, day after day, every other story would be followed up with, what's more, the Queen doesn't pay tax. The Queen felt impelled to act, even if her Prime Minister was not in favour of the idea. The fact of the matter is we would not have required the Queen to pay tax. I did not require the Queen to pay tax, Sir John said when I discussed it with him years later. Within the family, the Queen faced one formidable obstacle in her quest to reform the finances, the Queen Mother. It was George VI who had secured this tax break from Neville Chamberlain in the wake of the abdication, when the new King faced a crippling bill to pay off his predecessor. Writing my new biography, Queen of Our Times, The Life of Elizabeth II, I discovered just how keenly George VI had impressed the importance of this deal upon his daughter. As her former private secretary, Sir William Heseltine, said, anything in the way of a dictum her father had left her was very important. So the fact that the Queen was suddenly tearing up this deal against the wishes of her father, her mother and her Prime Minister was extraordinary. Yet she asked her Lord Chamberlain, the Earl of Airlie, and his team to start talks with the Treasury. The wisdom of that decision would become clear in November 1992, as the grandest parts of Windsor Castle lay in ashes after a builder's lamp had set fire to a curtain. Much of the media had reacted angrily to the government's suggestion that the state would fund the repairs. The following week, the Queen made her famous speech about her Annus Horribilis. Just two days later, Major stood before the Commons to announce that the monarch would now pay tax. The Queen had planned to go public a few months later, when it had all been finalised, but there was no time to lose. At the height of a crisis, the palace had been able to react swiftly and remove the principal stick with which to beat the monarchy. It is unlikely that anyone will be dwelling on moments like these as the bunting goes up and the trestle tables groan beneath the weight of cake and sandwiches. The Platinum Jubilee 
is a moment to celebrate the extraordinary service of a monarch whose reign began in the age of ration books and steam trains, whose very first medal at her first investiture as Queen was the Victoria Cross she pinned on Private Bill Speakman Pitt for heroism in the Korean War. This is the same Queen who, seven decades later, was holding Zoom calls with space scientists and meeting her 14th US President. As George W. Bush told me, it is highly unlikely that anyone else in history has known 14 presidents. In celebrating Her Majesty's 70 years on the throne, we will be touched by footage of a young woman, a young mother of two, taking on the most glamorous but impossible job in the world at the age of 25. Yet the enduring strength of the institution she leads, despite numerous challenges, is not just down to lucky genes and longevity. It is precisely because of her intuitive capacity to adapt and her quiet insistence on following her own instincts that the monarchy is as robust as it is today. Indeed, by the standards of her forebears, we can even call her a radical. For notwithstanding the declinous narrative of the Crown and the more disparaging commentators, a few days before the Queen overtook the reigning record of Queen Victoria in 2015, the Guardian's Polly Toynbee wrote that she was the past mistress of nothingness. She has presided over monumental change. And she has not just been an interested bystander. She has been a player. During the 1980s, a series of internal reforms driven by Lord Airlie not only dragged the court from the Edwardian era into the present day, but ensured that the monarchy's operational budget remained the same for 20 years. The Queen studied and approved it all. Or take one afternoon in 2011, when the monarchy underwent more constitutional upheaval in a single hour than in the previous hundred years. At a stroke, the governments of all her realms, 16 at the time, would abolish the system of male primogeniture, going back to time immemorial. They'd also overturn the 310-year-old rule that any member of the royal family marrying a Roman Catholic was debarred from the line of succession. Gone, too, was the 240-year-old rule requiring all lineal descendants of George II to seek regal approval before marrying, as a result of which the marriages of several distantly related couples were technically invalid. All these reforms were, of course, statutory issues for the Prime Ministers of the Queen's realms. David Cameron and Australia's Julia Gillard convened a special meeting for the whole lot, from Canada to tiny Tuvalu, in the margins of the 2011 Commonwealth Summit in Perth. But as I have discovered, the chief architect of those historic changes was the Queen's then Private Secretary, Sir Christopher, now Lord, Geit. It is inconceivable that Sir Christopher was acting independently of his boss. In other words, the Queen was well and truly in on it. Over the previous 30 years, MPs and peers spanning all three main parties had introduced no less than a dozen bills and private members' legislation to this effect, to no avail. Now, with a nod from the Queen, it all sailed through. Few will be discussing that over the trifle at the street party. However, think of the global uproar if, say, the Cambridges had produced a girl followed by a boy, or if Prince Harry had married a Catholic, while the old rules still applied. 
the Queen had certainly given much thought to that putative outcry. It is in relation to the Commonwealth, though, that she's been particularly ready to intervene. In the early days of the new Commonwealth Secretariat in the 1960s, the British government tried to quash its significance. So the Queen personally sought to bolster its position. She gave the Secretariat a palatial headquarters, Marlborough House, and decreed that its Secretary-General was to be elevated above every other diplomat. When the Diocese of London objected to a multi-faith Commonwealth service in its churches, the Queen made Westminster Abbey available and turned up in person. Despite the Crown's risible depiction of a scheming monarch plotting against Margaret Thatcher, some of the Queen's most notable interventions involved persuading other leaders not to alienate Mrs Thatcher. Classified files reveal her doing just that in Zambia in 1979. The resulting goodwill laid the ground for the creation of Zimbabwe. One issue on which the two women did come to blows was the Queen's little-known, and only, abdication. Following a double coup in Fiji in 1987, the Queen told her Governor-General, her Fijian alter ego, to resign rather than risk further violence. Mrs Thatcher thought that was an awful thing to have done, Sir William Heseltine told me. However, the Iron Lady had no jurisdiction over the Queen of Fiji. Once again, the monarch's mind was made up. As has invariably been the case throughout this reign, this was all done quietly but firmly. In her 2016 Christmas broadcast, the Queen revealed a core belief. Christ's example helps me see the value of doing small things with great love. She echoed this again in 2019 when she said, small steps can make a world of difference. Over 70 years, those small steps have accumulated at times imperceptibly, into a colossal canon of work. The Jubilee may focus on the big moments, coronation, weddings, state visits and so on, but it is the decades of seldom reported walkabouts, plaque unveilings, hospital visits and rainy regional away days which are at the heart of these celebrations. When her predecessors created legacy honours, they did so with great fanfare, the Victoria Cross, the Order of Merit, the George Cross, etc. The Elizabeth Cross occupies an entirely different place in the public consciousness because it is the decoration which no one wants, yet which is treasured more dearly than any other. For it is given to the next of kin of any serviceman or woman killed in the line of duty. It is so very her. In any given situation, the Queen's priority is not to please the crowd, Rather, it is not to let other people down. Time and again, while writing her biography, I was struck by the small details. To my mind, the most astonishing fact about the summer of 1982 was not the Queen's ride in the park with Ronald Reagan, or the arrival of the Pope, or even the appearance of an intoxicated intruder, Michael Fagan, at the end of her bed, threatening to slit his wrists with an ashtray. It is that four hours after that encounter, the Queen was holding her 11am investiture without blinking. More than a 100 people had turned up with their families to receive their honours and she was not going to disappoint them. Once again, the instincts had kicked in. These instincts have not only served her well, we have all been the beneficiaries. That was Robert Hardman.
Next, it's Marion Thomas. In March 2020, as the health service prepared for the first COVID wave, NHS England encouraged GPs to adopt a new system called Total Triage. The aim was to reduce the number of patients in clinics in order to protect GPs, their staff and patients themselves from the virus. If patients hoped this system was a temporary emergency measure, they were wrong. Under total triage, patients had to provide far more details of their sometimes sensitive and embarrassing symptoms to a receptionist or to an e-consultation form. They would then be allocated a telephone consultation with their GP or possibly another health professional, such as a nurse, pharmacist or physiotherapist. In the first year of the pandemic, records showed that there were 90 million fewer face-to-face appointments, a drop of 40%. Of these, 70 million happened on the phone instead, but the figures still show tens of millions fewer appointments overall. While Britain is moving on from COVID, many GP surgeries are emphatically not. It's still quite common to see signs telling patients to go away unless they have booked an appointment via internet or phone. Total triage has meant that GPs have had far less opportunity to examine patients, which has led to delay or failed diagnoses. The burden of urgent care has rapidly transferred to A&E, where pressure has become intense. At the last count, 24,000 patients per month had to wait for more than 12 hours to be seen. The reason is simple. General practice is broken. Rather than acknowledge these problems, the unions the British Medical Association and the Royal College of GPs insist that all can be solved by their long-term mantra of more investment. The government has swallowed the bait and has promised 6,000 more GPs within two years. This unachievable goal is doomed to failure, as was Jeremy Hunt's 2015 promise of 5,000 more GPs by 2020. Experienced GPs are leaving the profession in droves and medical students after they complete their placements in general practice and see the insurmountable problems are reluctant to fill the gaps. The number of fully qualified GPs in the NHS has changed little in the past three years. And the patients? A recent poll by the British Social Attitudes Survey has shown that public satisfaction with GP services is at its lowest since the survey began in 1983. NHS spending has trebled during that time. The new GP gravy train started its journey back in 2004 with the revised GP contract, which was a disaster for patient care. GPs were only allowed to take on clinical responsibilities for patients during weekday office hours. They had no contractual responsibility for out-of-hours care, i.e. at night, at weekends or bank holidays. Many patients were astonished by this concession from the Blair government. Others negotiated lucrative contracts to fill the resulting gaps in their schedules. This change was the start of the decline of general practice. The diagnosis and treatment of emergencies is, of course, at the heart of clinical medicine and cannot be restricted to office hours. A lack of exposure to such emergencies, especially for trainees, was always going to result in less skilled doctors. Even with a reduced workload, there has been a growing trend for GPs to work part-time, compromising patient care even further. Currently, an astonishing 58% of GPs work three days or fewer per week. We told that seeing patients is such a stressful business that part-time working is the only way to prevent burnout. 
In my 33 years working as an NHS consultant surgeon, I don't remember ever seeing this happen, not to heart, brain, cancer or other specialists who take life and death decisions every day. GP's work is far less complicated. Why should they be so badly affected by burnout? Last year, a survey of GPs found that one in three saying that they would like to quit direct patient care within five years. Why? When the Warwick academics asked GPs what would make them change their minds, one of the most popular responses was having more time to spend with patients and less being taken up with GP NHS paperwork. A step down from part-time doctoring is locum work, the refuge of freelance doctors who wish to avoid the constraints of a permanent job. The National Association of Sessional GPs says there are now 17,000 GP locums, one in every four GPs. The use of so many temporary staff prevents any continuity of care, which is the service patients most value. It is difficult to understand why anyone with a vocational calling would be satisfied with long-term permanent locum work. Perhaps this is the fault of the selection process to medical school or the unproven aptitude tests. A survey of trainees recently found that a third of them reported bullying in GP practice, most commonly from patients. When it comes to the failing efficiency of general practice, cancer care is the most obvious concern. A study published in the Lancet Oncology recently reported that even before the pandemic, more than a third of cancers were being diagnosed in accident and emergency. That is to say, at a dangerously late stage. A comparison was made with six other high-income countries, and Britain was the worst but one. It has long been known that cancer survival in the UK lags behind other comparable countries. Late presentation is usually to blame. Earlier diagnosis offers the only hope of improving survival. Some cancers, breast, cervix, colon, rectum, can be screened for. For the remainder, we must depend on the intuition and diagnostic skills of GPs. Stomach, liver, pancreas, lung, ovarian cancers present with vague symptoms of low predictive value and which is why telephone or virtual consultations are unlikely to be of much use. The vital clue may be spotted only by clinical examination, which is why in-person face-to-face -face consultations must be restored as soon as possible. It's an urgent problem, but in the NHS system, GPs have no financial incentive to give patients the service they have the right to expect. What is the difference in salary between the best GP in the country and the worst? On a sessional basis, there is none. The only incentive to provide a better service is professional pride and personal commitment. If there was competition in general practice, and if GPs were paid on a fee-for-service basis rather than upfront then primary care would look quite different. General practice used to be a cornerstone of the NHS. It is no longer. I've been criticised and trolled for voicing my concerns. Why do I persist? Because I gave my working life to the NHS. I care deeply for its future. I want to see it preserved and improved, not eroded. General practice needs radical reform. Patients deserve better. That was Marion Thomas. Next, it's Sarah Dighton. The problem for feminism is men, not specifically in the sense that men are the source of women's problems, although the statistics do tend to point in that direction. Feminism's men problem is that, despite all this, women like men, love men, 
One of the lessons of second wave experiments in separatism is that the idealised man-free existence is always fighting against the gravity of affection. Sandra Newman's novel The Men takes that quandary and does something clever with it. She imagines a world in which all the men and all the boys and all the trans women and all the male non-binaries and all the Y-chromosome-carrying fetuses are mysteriously spirited out of existence in one strange instant. How the left-behind women deal with this liberation, this bereavement, is what gives the story its queasy tension. Jane, the primary narrator, is camping with her husband and young son at the moment of rapture. She's indulging in a guilty pleasure daydream of having never married or had a child, an alternate reality in which she could be a prima ballerina in Japan or sail solo round the world. Still, I felt my husband and son there and loved that they were there. I was in love with them. And then they're not there anymore. Planes crash when their male pilots vanish from the controls. Fires rage in the absence of firemen. Women, shattered by grief, scream their lost one's names in the street with no one to answer. But after the cataclysm, a strange peace descends. The women are left in a world of lambs with no wolves. Girls can play outdoors unsupervised, the threat of the lurking nonce having been expunged. Women fill the parks, luxuriating in their freedom. Not that women aren't capable of a certain amount of wolfishness. Newman puts marauding teen girl gangs into her world, and there's a scene where a trans man is viciously mobbed. Jane herself has a complicated backstory, in which she's both a victim of grooming and a sexual predator. This is no sentimental pain to feminine virtue. But it is, undoubtedly, a better world in which to be a woman. One character, remembering all the harms men have committed, reflects, Of course, you couldn't know that their disappearance was a punishment, but who didn't think it was a punishment? Even so, some women miss their men, and when a broadcast called The Men begins, seeming to show the disappeared adrift in some cursed dimension, a few women become fixated on the idea of recovery. The Men, like Newman's previous novel The Heavens, teases us with the idea of utopia. What would we sacrifice to get there? Is it possible for human frailty to create a perfect world? It's a morally hard-edged and grippingly weird fiction. There's a gesture to the feminist sci-fi of Joanna Russ's The Female Man, but also to the abysmal imagination of that old lunatic H.P. Lovecraft. And Newman can write a beautiful sentence, the kind that unfolds itself into a small revelation. The book has, of course, been pre-damned as transphobic for counting trans women as male. Newman futilely defended herself by saying she identifies as non-binary, whatever that means here. But then anything intelligent about gender will get damned by someone. This is a gripping, haunting novel that miraculously swerves both cheap misandry and the lazy pieties of contemporary rectitude to ask, what is to be done when politics smashes into the demands of love? That was Sarah Dighton. And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed it, please rate and review this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel and pick up this week's issue to read more great articles. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week.